0: Good morning. Um, The second reading today is from Genesis chapter 49, um, chapter 51 in your pew Bibles. Then Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel, for you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. Simeon and Levi, are brothers, their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council, let me not join their assembly, for they have killed men in their anger, and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger, so fierce, and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his, white te- his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulon will live by the seashore and become a haven for ships. His border will extend towards Sidon. Issachar is a raw-boned donkey lying down between two saddlebags. When he sees how good is his resting place and how pleasant is his land, he will bend his shoulder to the burden and submit to forced labor. Dan will provide justice for his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan will be a serpent by the roadside, a viper along the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider tumbles backward. I look for your deliverance, O Lord, Gad will be attacked by a band of raiders, but he will attack them at their heels. Asher's food will be rich. He will provide delicacies fit for a king. Naphtali is a doe set free that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. With bitterness, archers attacked him and they shot at him with hostility but his bow remained steady, his strong arms stayed limber because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, because of your Father's God who helps you, because of the Almighty who blesses you with the blessings of the heavens above, blessings of the deep that lies below, blessings of the breast and womb. Your Father's blessings are greater than the blessings of the ancient mountains, than the bounty of the age-old hills, Let all these rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince among his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he devours the prey. In the evening, he divides the plunder. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them, giving each the blessing appropriate to him. Then he gave them these instructions. I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite. The cave in the field of Machpala near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham bought as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite along with the field. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob had finished giving instruction to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Thank you, Todd.
1: Well, we will be considering these two chapters, and what a fascinating passage it is. Um, These words, what do they mean? Well, let's ask God for his help. Let's turn in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we consider this part of scripture, help us to see what it is that we are to learn and what it is we are to believe. And grant us, Lord, your wisdom from above. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now last week, many of you would know that many of us from our church, we went along to a conference called the Engage Conference. And at the conference, I led a workshop on discipleship and there were quite a number of delegates and In my workshop, I asked all the delegates, which is what I'll ask you to do now, imagine, it may be hard to imagine, but just imagine you are on your deathbed. It's hard to imagine, it's frightening even to consider. You know that your end is near. Death is staring you at your face. And on your deathbed, reflect on your life's achievements. Your successes, what might they be? It's hard to imagine. It can be quite frightening. But then ask yourself, which of those achievements, which of those successes will have eternal significance? What of those efforts that you've poured hours and years into would make an eternal difference, would have a difference beyond the grave? I mean, it can be frightening just to imagine, just to think about. Will my life make any difference at all? Will my life have any significance for eternity? What will the legacy be that I'll leave? You see, many on their deathbed aren't thinking so much about my legacy. But often what we hear is that those on their deathbed, they're counting their regrets. See, according to a palliative care nurse, Bronnie Ware, she spent considerable time with the dying. She said, many who do face death are in deep regret. And these are some of their regrets. I wish I hadn't worked so hard. I wish I, ha- I would have allowed myself to be happier. I wish I stayed in touch with my friends. I wish I had the courage to express my feelings, my emotions. That will be the experience of many. But what about you? Now, of course, it's hard to imagine. We just don't know, do we? We have no idea whatsoever. But even just to try to imagine, will I die with regrets? Or will I die with a sense of I'm leaving a legacy? Does it excite you? Or does it frighten you? Well, see, in this passage, we come almost to the end of Genesis And Jacob is now 147 years old and is on his deathbed. He's weak. His sight is going. What will his legacy be? What will he leave behind? I mean, death is staring him in his face. And those moments, those last few hours, they're so important. And he gets to speak to each of his sons. What will his legacy be? Well, it was Joseph who came first as we look at this passage. He came first to his father Jacob with his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob, he rallies his strength to speak to Joseph. And you can just imagine if you were given that opportunity to speak to each of your children, and some of us may not have children, each of our loved ones, nephews, nieces, what would you say? Well, what was on Jacob's mind? When Joseph arrived, as he faced the end. You see, when anyone is on their deathbed, it's very telling what they say. What they say shows much of their heart, their hopes or their fears. Are there regrets or is there fear of death? In fact, the last funeral we had in our church family, it was the funeral I conducted of our beloved Margaret Dimelo. I still remember the very last sentence that she was able to string together, where she told her daughter to text me. And it was this. Mom said to tell you, The Lord is my shepherd has been very much on my mind. It's very telling, isn't it? Your last words before you face death. And what we see here is something similar with Jacob, because what was on his mind, what did he have to say to his sons? Now, do you notice in chapter 48, he prefaced his last words to his sons, not with what he thinks, but with what God has promised. And therefore, even as he faced the end, it wasn't fear, but it was hope. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. He said, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me and he said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful and will increase your numbers. I'll make you a community of peoples, and I'll give you this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. You see, what Jacob was doing there as he was facing the end was he wasn't afraid of death. He wasn't recounting his achievements, his successes, but instead he was recalling to mind the promises of God. They were not yet fulfilled. In fact, they were away from the land of Canaan out there in Egypt, And the numbers, well, they weren't as numerous as God had promised. And so he speaks to his sons, he blesses his sons, not with words that are just about what he's done, his successes, his achievements, but they were shaped by the promises of God. And it is those promises that shaped all his final words to all his sons. And so he first speaks to Joseph, No, Joseph was clearly his favourite, and we can understand why. As we consider this So we can understand why he favoured Joseph. But the way he blessed Joseph reveals that Joseph was not just a favourite, but the one he considered to be heir of the family. Do you notice that? Because how did he bless Joseph? He did something extremely strange, and you have to wonder why. Look at verses 5 and 6. Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Any children born to you after them will be yours. In the territory they inherit, they'll be reckoned under the names of their brothers. Now do you see what he did? It's a very strange thing. He's adopting the two sons of Joseph. As his own, he's in a sense elevating the two sons of Joseph to the rank of their uncles, such that their uncles become their brothers. This is a strange thing to do. Imagine your grandfather calling you not grandchild, but son or daughter, and you have the same ranking as your, your uncles and uh, uncles and uh, aunties. But but why? It's a strange thing to do. You see, in the ancient world, it was the heir who would get the double blessing. That's what the eldest son would get. And say so if you had 10 sons, you would divide your estate into 11. And the eldest would get a double portion. He'll get the double blessing. Today, I'm the eldest son. And today, it means absolutely nothing. But back then, it did. The eldest would get the double portion. And Joseph here gets that double blessing because... Both of his sons are elevated in rank. And that's why, you see, in the tribes of Israel, you don't have the tribe of Joseph. Do you notice that? But you'll have the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim. And so Jacob blesses them. But notice something very interesting in how he did it. Because out of the two sons of Joseph, who should have taken precedence? Well, again, he should have been the eldest, Manasseh. But look at verse 14, Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger, and crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Why? Why did he do such a thing? Why did he favor the younger above the older? Perhaps it might just be his own experience, because he was the younger of the twin, but he got the birthright. He got it above his brother Esau. Or perhaps it was the wives he had. He loved and favored Rachel over Leah. Perhaps he just favored the younger. But I think we see something here of not just Jacob's choice, but of what God was doing, how God works. You see, the way God works in the world is very different to human convention. We would want to honor the first, the brightest, The smartest, the beautiful, the powerful, the brilliant. They're the ones who are important. They're the ones God should use. But what we see throughout Scripture, they are often not the ones God will use. God will often use the weakest, the smallest, the outcast, the one who's despised, the one who's broken. He would lift up the humble and exalt them. And we see this throughout the Bible. In the book of Judges, Ehud, the judge, he was sort of like an outcast. He was left-handed. Now, what what I discovered recently was being left-handed meant that he was disabled in his right hand. He was an outcast. But yet God used even a left-handed man like him. Or King David. King David was the youngest of seven brothers. Why didn't God use the older, more powerful brothers? But he used the weakest. And even in the New Testament, who did God use? Who did Jesus use? Well, the apostles, you've got Peter, James, and John, they were just ordinary fishermen, but used by God. And so here, the younger will be exalted above the older, such that what will happen between these two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, is that a thousand years later, after the reign of King Solomon, after the kingdom was split between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, in the north, the most powerful tribe there was Ephraim. And often in the, in the Bible, in the, in the Old Testament, you'll hear the north term Ephraim or Israel. And so Jacob, he gives a double blessing to Joseph. He's the heir. Blesses him with the promises of God, the promises that were given to his grandfather Abraham. And now he calls in the rest of his sons. Now what would he say to them? Now what we find next in chapter 49 are some very mixed blessings. And as you were listening in, as it was being read before, I mean, if you were one of these sons, you will be thinking, I'm not really so sure I want to hear that blessing. It sounds more like a curse than a blessing. But what's the legacy Jacob wants to leave for his sons? What is it that he wants them to remember? What is it that he wants of them? Well, Jacob, he begins with the oldest and he moves down to the youngest. He begins with Reuben. Now, do you remember Reuben? He was a mixed bag. He was a wicked man, a piece of work. I mean, he started off, well, what Jacob said about him. Look at verse 3, chapter 49. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. I mean, those of us who are firstborns, We're thinking that's pretty good. Sounding pretty good so far. And then we read on verse 4. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. For you went up into your father's bed onto my couch and defiled it. Just as his hopes was raised, it completely sunk. His wickedness was not forgotten. It tainted him and all his descendants. Now, what do you think that tells us? What do you think that teaches us? What do you think that teaches us about sin? You see, it should at least help us see that sin can have lasting consequences. Often, you know, we think about sin, well, we're forgiven anyway, it doesn't matter. But sins can have lasting consequences and even generational consequences. He said the sins of the father will affect the children. And it may go on, affecting the descendants. And we see this even in society today. Broken families tend to breed broken families. Parents who divorce will show children how to divorce. Sins can be generational. And that is frightening. I mean, in Proverbs 11, we read, The wicked will not go unpunished. And that is what justice demands. And so even that is a somber thought. Our actions, our choices now can have generational impact for the better or worse. And so for Reuben, it meant already losing his birthright, which went to Joseph. And we see this quite clearly in 1 Chronicles. We read, The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was the firstborn, but when he defiled his father's marriage bed, His righteous firstborn were given to the sons of Joseph, son of Israel. And so what happened to this firstborn, the one who was meant to be a son of power and might? Well, he never became a great tribe, never really produced any great leaders for Israel. In fact, their land was even outside the promised land. If you read the story as they made their conquest, the land of Reuben was on the east side Of the Jordan, they never got in on the Jordan, on the Canaan. Well, next we have sons two and three, Simeon and Levi. Now, what did Jacob say to them? Again, their past could not escape them. Again, sins can have lasting consequences. And for these two, they took the sword and they killed the men of Shechem. Remember that story? And there's no word of blessing at all for them. Look at verse six. Let me not enter their council. That is, I want to stay away from this group. Verse 7. Curse be their anger, so fierce, and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. And that was exactly what happened to these two tribes. The tribe of Levi. They never got their own land. It became the tribe of priests. They were scattered throughout Israel. They never had their own portion. And Simeon... Well, the descendants were eventually scattered throughout Judah's territory, and they were, in a sense, politically incorporated with Judah so that they really lost their own identity that was their future. Now, at this point, we've looked at three sons already, and we might be wondering, what a thing to say to your sons on your deathbed. You're cruel, you're violent, you'll be scattered what a thing to say to your sons. Sounds more like curses than blessings. However, something we may miss, despite what their future will hold, they were still blessed. you know why? They were not cast out of the family. They were not sent away, but they were still graciously included. One of the tribes of Israel. And the final words from Jacob to his sons wasn't stay away from me, but it was to gather around, come near. And so they were still blessed. We have to keep that in mind. Well, next we come to the fourth son, the most significant, Judah. Himself a flawed man. Remember his story. Slept with a prostitute who turned out to be his daughter-in-law. And so he wouldn't have a righteous man at all, a flawed, broken, sinful man. However, over the last few weeks, we could see how God changed him, redeemed by God. Now, what did Jacob have to say about this son? Well, what Jacob had to say was two things. He'll have preeminence and he'll get power. He'll have preeminence over his other brothers. Look at verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you. You see, already that is more than what joseph received in joseph's dreams his brothers will bow down to him but it is to judah they will praise and then we read on your hand will be on the neck of your enemies your father's sons will bow down to you and so he'll be the first among the brothers he'll be praised as preeminent and so the other older three might have been thinking well this is a bit unfair but not only preeminent he'll also have power and this is where you have to imagine what Judah would have been thinking as he was hearing these words from his father. He would have been speechless. How could this be? I'm a flawed, broken man. How could this be? Because what type of power was he entrusted with? Look at verse 9. You are a lion's cub, o Judah. I mean, the lion, a sign of strength, of supremacy, of power. And just in case it's not clear enough, look at verse 10 now. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. And so what is Jacob saying about Judah? Well, it will be from this tribe that kings will come. This will be the tribe of kings. Rulers will come amongst his descendants, and the scepter will never depart from him extraordinary promises because how could it be that not just the nation of Israel would obey this king but the nations is speaking about a worldwide obedience to a king from the line of Judah I mean that is extraordinary what was promised here even during the height of the British Empire they ruled 23 percent of the world's population at a time But what this promise is saying is that this king will rule over 100%. How is that possible unless there will come a king who will have absolute power and rule over the entire earth? Now, who do you think that is? You would know, right? But that is, of course, speaking about Jesus Christ. In light of the gospel, the king from Judah will not just be any man, but the man man God, Jesus Christ, the one who will have absolute power the one from whom the scepter cannot be taken away from and it's important to understand what is being made known here you see since genesis chapter 3 remember the curse of the serpent the curse of the woman and of the man god actually gave a little hint of a promise that there will be a seed an offspring of eve who will one day come along and will crush the serpent's head. And as you read the book of Genesis, you're meant to work out or try to find out, well, where is this seed? When will this seed come? And then, so as you trace the line, oh, okay, it's going to come from Abraham. It's going to come from Isaac and then Jacob. And then you're wondering, well, where, where will it come? Well, now we're told it will come from the line of Judah. Now, I wonder whether you might be thinking now, but why Judah? I thought Joseph was the heir. I thought he was the one who received the double blessing. And Joseph, if anyone should have deserved it, it was Joseph. He was flawless in character. But you see, Joseph did get the double blessing, but Judah got the better blessing. Joseph got the double blessing, Judah got the better blessing. Why? Well, again, I think we see here how God works. How is it that God works? That God used the powerful, the great, and the brilliant? Well, we see how God works here. Though Jacob may have chosen Joseph, God's choice was the undeserving Judah. And though Joseph became saviour, he was the saviour of Egypt and the nations around then, he won't be king. And so from here we're starting to see the beginning of two figures. Two figures. One saviour... And a king, a saviour, Joseph, he's a saviour. And we're getting a picture here of a king who will come. And of course, that is pointing forward to one who will be both saviour and king. And God is making clear here, it will come from the line of Judah. The one who will come and identify with the messiness of Judah's line, with the brokenness of Judah's line. Judah had no moral compass Tamar was a Gentile, but one who will come and identify with all of that. A saviour king who will come in the mud and filth and brokenness of humanity to redeem all humanity. And so Judah was looking forward to that. That was his blessing. Now, after Judah, we won't spend much time on the other brothers because it's a bit like you're reading the will. You know, the, the mansion goes to this brother, the BMW goes to the other brother. Um, the holiday house goes to the other one. And then you're reading the will, and what's left? It's, the, it's a vacuum cleaner. That goes to the rest of the sons. Well, it's a Dyson, so, you know, share it. But that's what the rest of the sons get. Zebelin, he will live by the seashore. Perhaps he's meant to be prominent in, in even sharing and being a light to the nations. Jonah is believed to come from that tribe. And then you've got Issachar, like a donkey, Dan, provide justice, but will be like a serpent. Samson was from Dan. Gad, attacked by raiders, but will attack back. Asher, a place of rich food, so perhaps fertile land. Naphtali is a doe or a deer. Joseph, a fruitful vine. And Benjamin, a ravenous wolf. And so from Benjamin, you get King Saul, you get Ehud, you get even the Apostle Paul. Well, apart from Joseph, I'm not sure what all the other brothers would have been thinking at this point. I mean, they've been caught animals. A donkey here, a serpent there, a doe, a wolf. I mean, imagine writing that to your kids or saying that to your kids on your deathbed. Esther, you'll be the cow. Caleb, the donkey. Ethan, the camel. You must wonder what these brothers would have been thinking. Why don't I get to be the lion like Judah? I want to be the lion. But of course, God will bless And God will do as he pleases. But now the question again. What's the legacy he has left for his sons? What's the legacy of Jacob? With his final words, in the face of death, he spoke not merely of what they'll become in the future, but what he did, and it's important for us to see, he holds out the hope of the promises of God. Don't worry too much about what is happening now. Don't think too much about what has taken place. But remember the promises of God and place your hope in that. Because what did he request of them? Look at verse 29 now. He said, I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers. Now, why did he say that? Why did he make such a strange request? on even where he would be buried. I mean, you're dead already. Who cares? That cemetery, another one, who cares? You'll just be bones. Well, it is simply because the legacy he wants to leave is that they never forget the covenant promises of God. Whatever will take place in your household, do not forget what God has promised to Abraham. I'll be gathered to my people implies Jacob here. There's that hint, that's that, there's that sense that he saw his death not as separation but reunion. I'll be gathered with my people. And he wanted to be buried in the place in Canaan, a piece of Canaan they already owned. Why? Why? It's because it was his foothold, the first installment of what god has promised bury me there because eventually god will give us all of that he's holding out the hope that his sons should hold on to and so jacob with his last words my legacy is this don't be too comfortable in this land this is not home it might be a land of abundance now but this is not our home don't blend in and lose your identity remember you who you are you belong to God. And don't forget the promises of God. It is better than this. Hold on to that. Hope in that better future. Grounded in the promises of God. Because one day, there will be that saviour king who will come as a lion from the tribe of Judah. Just wait and see. That was his legacy. And so verse 33. When Jacob had finished and finished giving instructions to his sons who dropped his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. And what do you think? Did he leave a lasting legacy? You see, when he was there in Egypt, things would have been good, especially after the life he lived, especially after what he saw and heard of what his his sons did to each other to be finally reunited with Joseph, to see his grandsons, to see his sons reconciled, to see his family abundantly provided for. It is all good and well. But even in death, he was future-looking. The legacy he left was for his sons to live in that hope, grounded in the promises of God, there will be a coming saviour-king. There'll be a coming saviour king who'll bring about the kingdom of God, who'll come about and bring mercy and justice. There'll be the saviour king who'll bring reconciliation with God and lavish out all the blessings of heaven. He'll fulfill all those promises to Abraham. And he will be the one who will crush the serpent's head. I mean, just like in a Puritan prayer, You know, hell is vanquished and heaven is mine. And so as we listen on what he said when he was on his deathbed, I mean, doesn't it make you think, what will your legacy be? What will our legacy be when our time is up? What will we leave our loved ones? I mean, whether we have children or not, what will we leave our loved ones It's very easy to think about legacy as in how they'll remember me. I wonder how my family and friends will remember me. I wonder what they'll say. Have you ever wondered? I wonder what they'll say at my funeral. I wonder what my children will say or my friends will say at my funeral. I hope they'll remember me, my children. Hopefully they'll say, you know, he was a loving father. He always gave us his time. He spent much time of fun and enjoyment with us took us on holidays and the wife saying, maybe he was he was a great husband gave of himself sacrificial it's just awesome friends saying well he he's, he was deeply missed he was fun he was caring i mean that would be nice isn't it i wonder what people would say about me there's something good about those memories that's not to be dismissed but when i reflected on all of jacob's last words I couldn't help notice that the legacy he wanted to leave his children was not remember me, instead remember God. His last words weren't about remember my words, but remember the promises of God. His last words weren't keep me in your heart, but keep the Lord in your heart. And so for all of us, if anything, That's a much better legacy to leave. Not merely holding on to the promises of God, but now for us, because for them they were looking forward. For us now it's looking back. Hold on to what Jesus has already done for you in his death and resurrection. Now, of course, we talk about legacy, we talk about being on our deathbed, but we don't have to wait till then, is it? It may be too late. We don't have to wait till then. It starts today. What will you do today? I mean, for, for myself, this is how I've been convicted. Most weeks, I'll try to have daddy time with each of our kids. It doesn't happen every week, but I try to every week. A time with Esther, Caleb, and Ethan, about an hour each. And partly it's because I just want to spend some time with them, have some fun with them. Uh, they, I have some fun. They probably don't think it's fun, but anyway, I do it. Partly because I just want to know what's going on in life, in their life, amongst their friends at school, what's happening in youth group, in kids' church. But it's largely because even now, I don't want to wait until I'm dying. Even now, I'm thinking, what will my legacy be? And countless times I've said to them, you know what daddy and mommy wants. We we say it in Chinese, but you know what we want most for you not achievements, not successes. I mean, you get 95%. That is bad. You should get 100 But anyway, <laughs> what we want most for you, what we want most for you is not what you achieve in life. Yeah, we don't really care what career you'll get into, what university you'll, you'll get into, what course you study, what job you'll do. What we want most in life, and keep this as the perspective you hold on to, and that is, you continue to trust in the Lord Jesus. Do not let go of him. In fact, trust that he'll never let go of you. Because only then will we be reunited in heaven. This time on earth is short. Eternity is forever. I don't want to just spend time with you now, but in all eternity. When all the saints are reunited, standing before the throne of our saviour king jesus christ because one day i'll be just as you'll be gathered with our people but i want to be gathered with you too one day i mean it might sound a bit somber doesn't it but that provides us with our eternal perspective it might be somber thinking about our own funeral but it's worth thinking about i don't really care when that happens I don't really care too much whether they'll say nice things about me or not. It's not so important. But what I hope they might recognize is that their father was just a broken, sinful man like anyone else. Not perfect, not the greatest, not the funnest. He'll have his flaws. He did have his flaws and failings, but he was a man loved by God. A man who held on to the promises of Jesus Christ because my dad did that I so too isn't that a wonderful legacy no regrets no regrets whatsoever but a legacy that will mean eternal difference let's pray gracious heavenly father we thank you lord that in the lord Jesus Christ you do hold out that wonderful promise that saviour king from the tribe of Judah who brings us back to you who reconciles us that we might have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And so, Lord, we plead, help us to live this life, not waiting till the moment when we are dying, but to be fruitful and productive now so that we will make an eternal difference, holding out the hope of the promises of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.